Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We got your stool ready for you. Come on in. We got a lot to talk about today. And uh, before we get to good, bad, and crazy martinis, which we certainly have today, uh, Jim, just real briefly, we got the news. I saw it this morning. I don't know exactly when it broke that uh, Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman has been hospitalized after feeling lightheaded at a Democratic retreat. Obviously, his health has been a major question for a while now. It was just before the primary back in May of last year that he suffered what turned out to be a pretty serious stroke. I don't know a lot of the details at this point. I'm not sure a lot of people do, but I think our main message would be I hope he's okay. And also just be honest with what's going on because we didn't get a lot of that last year. Yes, Greg. Uh, we wish our offer our very best wishes to the Fettermans. Hope he pulls through just fine. And just I, I don't know about you. I'm stunned. Who could have seen this coming? On to our uh, good martini now. And Jim, it's not often that uh, members of both parties will go after a uh, clear political official, but that is what's happening when it comes to Pete Buttigieg at the Senate Commerce, Science, and Transportation Committee. It's a lot to do in one committee. But according to The Hill, the top lawmakers on that committee called out Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg during a Thursday hearing on the Southwest Airlines meltdown, which, of course, happened over the holidays. Senator Maria Cantwell, Democrat of Washington, the committee chairwoman, said that the Department of Transportation isn't doing enough to crack down on poor airline service. This sector needs a more effective policeman on the beat, she said. They need someone over at the Department of Transportation who is going to get the job done. Ouch. Meanwhile, uh, Republicans have accused the Biden administration of going too far with government regulation, noting that the federal government has caused its own disruptions. Senator Ted Cruz, the committee's ranking member, took aim at Buttigieg over last month's system meltdown at the FAA that briefly grounded all U.S. flights for the first time in two decades. And his comment simply was, notably absent from today's meeting is Secretary Buttigieg. He says the DOT didn't give any mea culpa to impacted travelers. The Biden Transportation Department didn't issue refunds, didn't issue reimbursements. It just screwed up their flights and then proceeded to say, we want to be in charge of how the airlines behave. So, uh, Jim, I mean, the performance lately is obviously indefensible, but uh, you often see a lot of people defending the indefensible when it comes to political allies. So uh, good on Cantwell, and hopefully something will actually happen here. Yeah, I have a piece about Buttigieg in the uh, latest issue of National Review he comes to Washington and the transportation secretary job with more enemies than you might expect a Democrat to have within his own party. Uh, some of this is lingering bad blood over the 2020 campaign. Uh, the Bernie Sanders folks don't like him. The Kamala Harris and her staff think that Buttigieg is uh, trying to set himself up to leapfrog ahead of her if the, in, the, in the race to be a successor to Biden. Um, Obviously, there are a bunch of progressives who look at his past work for McKinsey Consulting and believe that he basically was working for the devil. And that is probably not the craziest thing you'll hear progressives say. There are a lot of good questions to be asked about McKinsey Consulting and some of their clients, particularly for ones affiliated with hostile states in the past. So there are a bunch of people when there's a screw up at the Department of Transportation are really eager to say, hey, Buttigieg screwed up here. And it's not just Republicans. But I do think that as these start adding up, kind of like those delayed flights on a, at an airport, uh, you start to wonder, OK, well, is Pete Buttigieg really the right kind of guy? You know, you think back, you know, I'm not going to say that Norman Mineta 
was a uh, the world's greatest cabinet secretary. You go back to the Ray LaHood, um, Anthony Fox, the former mayor of, of Charlotte. Most of the time, the Secretary of Transportation, you don't hear about very much. And that's a sign things are working smoothly. In fact, you usually hear about these people when something has gone terribly wrong. Uh, the fact that you're hearing so much about Buttigieg, I mean, does he get more attention because he ran for president in 2020? Yes. And that means he gets more scrutiny. But he also probably would not be in this job if he hadn't run for president in 2020. There was no one who was saying, hey, you know who'd make a good transportation secretary? The former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. <laughs> um, and I think there are a lot of people who'd say, look, you know, you look at Buttigieg's resume. Yes, he's a very bright Harvard and Oxford and McKinsey and Naval Reserves and all that stuff. That's great. But uh, he didn't really have that much experience dealing with transportation. So the question was, could you take this person who was bright, clearly very ambitious? Could it run smoothly? And I think the answer is no. And I, my, one of the things I conclude in my piece is that Pete Buttigieg is trying to use the job of transportation secretary to keep himself in the public eye, to keep himself in the mix, to be one of Biden's potential successors. If, God forbid, he has some health issue or he chooses not to run, it certainly sounds like he's going to run, um, or as a successor in 2028 or something like that. And I think, look, that this is why you probably, you know, who, who should be running the Department of Transportation? Somebody who's really interested in transportation, somebody who really knows about this stuff backwards and forwards and cares about it, and who's not interested in the job as a stepping stone to bigger and better things. This is a little bit like Hillary taking the Secretary of State job, right? Because uh, uh -huh. you, you lost a, a presidential campaign and you're not very happy about it, but you got to stay in the public eye. You could argue that Hillary's time as a senator and maybe even a little bit as a first lady made her a little more qualified uh, at that role, but I think mainly he just wanted to keep the, the rivals closer than, than further apart in terms of Obama's thinking there. But Buttigieg, I think he, he figures, okay, uh, I keep this. Uh, no, not a super high profile job, but uh, if we can pass this transportation bill and I can kind of decide where the transportation dollars go, I can make new friends in key states for 2024 or 2028 whenever I get to run again, uh, and it'll just be this really smooth process. But then life happens and you have to deal with stuff that you didn't expect to happen. And that happened to Hillary as well, as we know. Uh, and then you're kind of caught flat-footed and, and exposed for being there for political reasons as opposed to actual competence reasons. And uh, it's not turning out too well for him. No, my conclusion in the piece is that Pete Buttigieg really wants to get to the Oval Office. And no matter how hard he tries, Greg, he just can't get there, much like America's air travelers. All right, Jim, on to our bad martini now. And this one is uh, certainly sobering and maddening and, and frightening, really. Uh, free beacon with the story, because for some reason, a lot of the uh, mainstream media just don't seem to have much interest in this story. A second Republican New Jersey council member was shot dead Wednesday, just a week after a first was gunned down outside her home. Milford Councilman Russell Heller who also works as a supervisor at a utility company, was gunned down in a parking lot outside his office on Wednesday by a former employee. Last Wednesday, Sayerville Councilwoman Eunice Dwumfor was killed by an unidentified gunman outside her home in what police called a targeted attack. Heller's killer was later found dead from a suspected self-inflicted gunshot wound, uh, and these killings happened less than 15 miles apart. Uh, in New Jersey, and I think both are fairly close uh, to the New York metropolitan area. And so, now Jim, the responsible thing to do is to cover the story and not jump to conclusions or try to bury it. Uh, we've certainly seen the Democrats 
try to tie anything that's negative towards a Democrat to uh, their preferred talking points. See the attack on Paul Pelosi, which was a horrific attack, but to try to blame that on Trump supporters seems more than a stretch. Uh, but in this situation, we also don't know a lot about the Moes. In fact, I don't even think we have a suspect in that first killing yet. But the lack of interest is certainly very curious. I was going to say, Milford and Sayreville are not right next to each other, but they're not terribly far apart. It's about an hour's drive. Um, in fact, not terribly far away from my old neck of the woods. And just, you know, look, do we know motive yet? No. Is it conceivable that these are, you know, two unfortunate cases of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, some sort of apolitical crime? Uh, yeah, it's possible. But, boy, it really feels like a weird uh, coincidence to have not one but two New Jersey local officials shot dead outside their homes uh, in the span of a week. And you're kind of left wondering uh, what on earth could be uh, at work here. Uh, look, we've seen situations like the, uh, the, the congressional baseball game uh, practice that was uh, attacked by a, a would-be aspiring mass shooter. And, I, you know, a lot of times where you can hear that, oh, imagine if the parties were reversed. Well, look, if there were two shootings of two Democratic local officials in, in, you know, two towns that are not too far apart in the span of a week, particularly around the New York City, you know, New York City media market, I have a sneaking suspicion you'd be hearing a heck of a lot about this. And there'd be a lot of speculation that this was another case of right wing extremism and somebody, you know, Trump's rhetoric or somebody else's rhetoric is inspiring violence and, and all that kind of stuff. Again, we don't know exactly what's going on here, but it does seem like a, a really big coincidence to have not one but two local officials killed in this place. And if you know, none of us, I think, would be particularly surprised if we found out that it was some unhinged left-wing activist who decided they were going to make the world a better place by shooting Republican officials. So uh, hopefully police will be able to resolve this really quickly, but um, just unbelievably uh, unnerving uh, to think this. And to th the other thing is the, I don't want to say in total news blackout, but the fact that this is, I'm going to pause and use a rather uh, ironic phrase, Greg, it's a local crime story, as a reporter uh, once described, uh, infamous abortion doctor a few years ago. Look, maybe this really is just a local crime story, but I think we should keep an eye on it. And, you know, the possibility of this not being a local crime story, but an example of actual hideous left wing violence is not a, not a uh, scenario that we can rule out at this point. Yeah, we don't know. Um, but the fact that two elected officials have been murdered in a certain area and uh, just murdered at all uh, should uh, receive attention. I realize they're local officials. They're not even state officials or federal officials. But, uh, uh, you know, like you said, if it was uh, reversed, uh, the narrative would be flowing fast and furious uh, from a lot of different sources that get a lot more traffic uh, than the places we're finding uh, these stories. So uh, just a little consistency would be nice. The Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski. Every day, Chris helps unpack the connection between politics and the economy and how it affects your wallet. What's the biggest factor hovering over the American economy? It's foreign policy. Between Chinese surveillance and Russian aggression, these geopolitical concerns are huge risks to our financial markets. How should you react? The Watchdog on Wall Street explains. Whether it's happening in D.C. or down on Wall Street, it's affecting you financially. Be informed. Check out the Watchdog on Wall Street podcast with Chris Markowski on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, on to our crazy martini now, Jim, and uh, back to the balloon. We talked about uh, the situation a couple of days ago, but how the story keeps changing. Oh, 
lots of balloons during the Trump years. Ah, turns out they skirted the country. They didn't quite go across thousands of miles like this one. Uh, oh, uh, and he was never told about them, possibly on purpose. Or we never even realized that they were Chinese balloons that were spying on us. So now there's more to this. Uh, first of all, David Martin, longtime Pentagon correspondent over at CBS News, sitting down with the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, and part of their discussion centered on the path of the balloon. And here is Lloyd Austin trying to uh, reassure us uh, about what was done in response to the balloon going over a number of sensitive areas. Austin says the balloon's route took it past ballistic missile fields and a B-2 stealth bomber base. All of our strategic assets, we were made sure that... Uh, we were, were buttoned down and movement was uh, limited and communications were were, uh, were were limited so that we didn't expose uh, any capability unnecessarily. By strategic assets, you mean the, the nuclear force? Mm -hmm. Just stay really quiet and maybe they won't notice anything, Jim. That's what they were doing <laughs> at those sites. But uh, you go into a lot more detail in, uh, in the morning jolt today, uh, going back a ways now uh, in explaining how frequent uh, this balloon threat has been, how we kind of got caught flat-footed in a number of ways. We mentioned the comment from the general at NORAD saying, yeah, we didn't really realize what was happening before uh, in his earlier comments. And so just how frequent is this and just how big of a threat is this? I think those are questions that are at least based on publicly available information are not easy to answer, Greg. But I think it's a much bigger deal than the tone of the Biden administration would suggest. Um, the first thing I begin with in today's jolt, but I, you know, this is when I really enjoyed writing. I really love it when I can like bring a lot of information to readers that they probably didn't know already. So back in 2020, we're all dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic and over in Japan, there was a report of a mysterious white object in the sky. And apparently, you know, it was a big deal in social media over there, all kinds of Godzilla jokes. And, you know, is it North Korea? Is it UFOs and all that stuff? Uh, but it turns out that news coverage and Reuters, they had a picture then. And, uh, you know, you can go to uh, the Morning Jolt and take a look at it. But also it was described as, quote, a balloon-like object above a cross upon which propellers seem to be turning. Now, what does that sound like? That sounds like the spy balloon that was just traversed over the United States last week. Uh, oh, by the way, it was over Sendai, which has not, you know, no less than four bases of the Japanese self-defense force. So I think we have a good idea of what that, you know, what that was and what it was doing. Um, you mentioned the, you know, the, the entire argument of, well, why didn't Trump shoot him down uh, over the late late last week and into the weekend? Uh, Greg, that was stupid. It was a stupid debate done before, you know, put out by stupid people, um, not least of which because all of Trump's national security advisors uh, came forward and said, we were never told about this. And Secretary of Defense Mark Esper said, I don't remember ever getting any briefings or reports about uh, Chinese spy balloons. Well, the reason they didn't get those reports is because no one determined that they were Chinese spy balloons until after Trump had left office. So you cannot blame the Trump administration for not doing enough before Biden took office. There's been talk about one earlier in the Biden years, and I think we can now kind of put that together. Uh, in February 2022, um, the uh, F-22s out of the Pacific Command in Hawaii were mobilized. Um, it was basically a signal that, uh, that they have some sort of... Uh, a high altitude object floating in the air, right? So they send it, they uh, determine that it is a unmanned balloon without observable identification markings. Oh, by the way, this is over the island of Kauai, which is home of the Kauai Test Facility, which is a rocket launch range operated by San Diego National Laboratories as part of the U.S. Navy's Pacific Missile Range Facility. I think we know what they were trying to look at there. 
Now, as you mentioned, the uh, head of, you know, uh, North American Command had said, we did not detect those three, which is really unnerving. That That's really what should be keeping us up at night. Um, and what's more is that, you know, okay, so now we're detecting this one. Apparently, I've, since I, I published this, I've heard from a few other uh, folks who work in this area who say that uh, the problem with the balloon is that it moves slowly. You have your radar, and your radar is calibrated to detect things. And one of the things you'd want to detect is something like, say, an airplane flying into your airspace or something like that. Well, the balloon moves slowly, and it moves along with the wind. And I guess it's harder to pick out uh, against the normal air motions and things like that, or could easily mistaken for a bird or something like that. So this is going to require us calibrating our radars. And the fact that we detected this one... Uh, is a good sign. It's a sign where we're getting better at this. Maybe we are mitigating this threat, but it certainly indicates that, with at least for a while, China was able to get this into our airspace without us noticing. Um, the other thing, which is really kind of troubling, as people point out, the president was only notified of this once it got over Montana, meaning they watched it go over Alaska, enter U.S. airspace, descend back down through Canada, and only when it goes from Canada into uh, Montana did it become something of okay, we'd better tell the president. Well, came went over the Aleutian Islands. And again, didn't know this until I started digging into it, but Shemya Island is where there's a U.S. Uh, airstrip and air base, and it's a major site. It's what, basically the U.S. base that is closest to China and Russia. It is at the absolute far end of the Aleutian Islands, closer to, closer to Russia than to most of, uh, most of Alaska even. That's how far out it is, right? Um, this is important. This is not only for the radar stations, listening posts, weather stations, all that kind of stuff. Um, this is basically, if we, God forbid, we ever went to war with Russia or China, this base would be a very important spot. In fact, the Green Berets recently practiced a training operation simulating a defense of that island from an effort to capture it. Um, oh, by the way, keep in mind that not too far from this island, we've seen uh, both China's People Liberation Army Navy ships and four Russian Navy ships, uh, including a destroyer. They're actually sailing together in a uh, formation. Um, that certainly seems ominous up there. You know what else is in Alaska? The missile defense complex housed at Fort Greeley, which is probably one of the two most important missile defense bases in the United States. It's been described as the only protection America has against an incoming North Korean intercontinental ballistic missile, or, Greg, say any other Asian country that has nuclear weapons that could conceivably fire them at the United States. Hmm. Gee, do we think the, the Chinese military would like to be able to listen into the communications around there? <laughs> Alaska has nine military bases uh, scattered over it. And so this idea of, well, okay, it's only over Alaska, you know, we're only going to mobilize when it's across the level 40, lower 48. No, 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 no. This is actually a very important one. In fact, if you're looking at where we are likely to have conflict with China and Russia, the Arctic region and the Pacific Ocean, um, that's, you know, this Alaska is really kind of core to the to, uh, command and control, radar defense, air defense, and, and those both of those areas. So a Chinese spy balloon going over Alaska could conceivably be a very big deal. None of this is coming across in any of the administration statements, and it makes me suspect, um, you know, a lot of this quickly will turn into, you know, oh, Trump stinks, or oh, Biden stinks, or something like that. No, I think the Pentagon has at least partially dropped the ball here. and That's what really should be concerning us. But I guess if we can't turn it into a partisan food fight, Greg, it just isn't that interesting a story. Yeah, nobody likes to cover it if we can't uh, demonize somebody on the other side of the aisle. So uh, that's that's just boring these days. So excellent job on your part, Jim, uh, to detail all of that. I think that adds a lot more color to uh, what we've seen over the past, uh, whatever it is, week, week and a half now with this latest balloon. And it shows that uh, the Chinese have a a systematic way of uh, trying to gain the upper hand on us intelligence-wise. And uh, other than Biden's uh, one line there in the speech, his, uh, his uh, plan seems to be to just keep talking. 
So uh, uh, whether it's going to yeah, be actual really consequences. Oh, we shot it down. So it's OK. No, no, not really. <laughs> Any consequences other than Tony Blinken not going over there? Is that our is that our biggest <laughs> stick that we can delaying? Use? We should emphasize. <laughs> yes. it's not like, well, we're never going to you know, hold a summit with those guys. Although there's interesting, you know, like one of the things we should think about is if this was del- meant as a provocation to kind of force the U.S. to cancel that summit, um, you know, does do the Chinese government really want to uh, negotiate with us? Do they want to talk to us? Or are there parts of the Chinese government that do want to talk to us and parts of the Chinese government that do not want to talk to us? And was this an effort on their part to sabotage this? Really big consequential questions here that uh, my guess is the administration would rather nobody pay too much time because, you know, hey, Biden's going to go across the country and talk about, you know, luggage fees. (laughs) It's complicated. It's got layers, and therefore the media is not going to waste time on it. That's that's probably how they look at most of these things. But, uh, Jim, you did the good work here, and uh, hopefully a lot of people learned something. I sure did today. So uh, thanks for that, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already, and tell a friend about us as well. Thanks so much for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch Podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday, and join us again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch.